Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 25, verses 19 to 34. Let us listen for God's word for us this day. These are the descendants of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham became the father of Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, and the sister of Laban, the Aramean, from Padamaram. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife since she was unable to have children. The Lord was moved by his prayer, and his wife Rebekah became pregnant. But the boys pushed against each other inside of her, and she said, if this is what it's like, why did it happen to me? So she went to ask the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two different peoples will emerge from your body. One people will be stronger than the other. The older will serve the younger. When she reached the end of her pregnancy, she discovered that she had twins. The first came out red all over, clothed with hair, and she named him Esau. Immediately afterward, his brother came out gripping Esau's heel, and she named him Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when they were born. When the young men grew up, Esau became an outdoorsman who knew how to hunt, and Jacob became a quiet man who stayed at home. Isaac loved Esau because he enjoyed eating game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was boiling stew, Esau came in from the field hungry and said to Jacob, I'm starving. Let me devour some of this red stuff. That's why his name is Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright today. Esau said, since I'm going to die anyway, what good is my birthright to me? Jacob said, give me your word today. And he did. He sold his birthright to Jacob. So Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. He ate, drank, got up, and left, show, showing just how little he thought of his birthright. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. From the get-go, this is a story that grabs our attention. For in it, we see truth we clearly recognize, if we are in tune at all to the world around us. There is something of this image of two babies pushing against one another, struggling with each other, tumbling and kicking one another. All words English translators have used to describe the Hebrew word used here, which at its root is the verb to crush. There is something in this interuterine struggle that feels so familiar for those of us living in our world today. My hunch is that ever since the story was first told, every generation who has heard it has experienced that same familiarity. We as a people seem to be hardwired for struggle and conflict with each other. To see this truth lived out in the story from the womb from before these two sons even take breath into their lungs is a powerful image. At its root, it seems the struggle, this conflict between brothers, between nations, is so often born from seeds of self-interest and a belief in a zero-sum game. The Jacobs of this world grasp for power, try to pull down their brother in order to rise above him because there's this belief that there is only so much in the world. So much power, so much money, so much blessing. 
so that whatever my brother has or gains equates to my loss. In this understanding of the world, I then, out of my self-interest, need to try to grasp some of what he has and take it away from him if I want to get what I think I need or want. This way of thinking about the world exists because of the societal structures we have created. The fact that Jacob and Esau are born into a world where the birthright and blessing aren't shared equally among a family's descendants, but instead are consolidated and given to the firstborn son is an example of one such structure. What becomes clear as this story unfolds, as the larger story of scripture unfolds, is that God does not abide by the rules of our human created structures. Instead, God repeatedly works in ways counter to them. It is God that delivers this oracle to Rebecca as she is reeling due to the war playing out inside of her and turns to the Lord for help. God says, two nations are in your womb. Two different peoples will emerge from your body. One people will be stronger than the other. The older will serve the younger. The older will serve the younger, God ordains. This is not the first time God has shown preferential treatment to the underdog, nor is it the last time that God will lift up the unexpected one, the one not blessed by society's structures, to a place of prominence, power, and privilege. The twin's father, Isaac, was Abraham's secondborn, and yet he becomes the one to carry forward the covenant relationship with God. It will be Jacob's own 11th son, Joseph, who will carry that covenant forward for his generation. Later, it will be the son of the foreigner, Ruth, her son Obed, who will carry on the promise for the people of Israel. Then Obed's son Jesse will be paid a visit by the priest Samuel, who is looking to anoint the next king of Israel. After going through all of his oldest sons, Samuel will finally lay hands on Jesse's youngest, David, anointing a shepherd boy to be king. God does not abide by the societal structures we create. So often, God chooses the least expected to bear forth God's promises into the world. Time and again, God will turn our own structures and hierarchies upside down on their head. Yet here's the thing. Whenever God does this, he lifts the one without power position up. He offers blessing to the one who typically would not be blessed in our zero-sum game world. And yet in the end, what we discover is that there is enough for all. Both Isaac and Ishmael are made into great nations with more than enough to sustain their descendants. The same is true for those who will come from both Jacob and Esau's line. There's always more than enough. God seems to be trying to teach us that we do not have to grip and to grasp. Jacob's heel grabbing is not necessary for the blessing to come. We do not have to function from a place of self-interest because we belong to a God that holds all of our best interests at heart. What we would discover if we would let ourselves rest in the promise of God's grace and mercy, God's provision and protection, 
is that God's interest is what is most life-giving for us all. It was generations upon generations after Jacob and Esau's time that another unexpected person was chosen to carry God's blessing into the world. This time, it was an unwed teenage young woman who would bear forth God's anointed. Mary gave birth to Jesus, the son of a humble carpenter from Galilee who likened himself to a good shepherd, would come to reign over the world, not by grasping power through strength and might, but instead by opening himself, pouring himself out in radical, self-giving, sacrificial love. He did not operate from a place of self-interest as he moved through the world. He focused wholly and intently on God's interests and sought to fulfill them as he lived out his days. What becomes clear as we stand at the foot of the cross, as we stand at the entry to that empty tomb, is that God's interest is life for all of us, blessing for all of us. In order that that reality might come to pass, God consistently lifts up the underdog, the poor, the marginalized, saying to a world that has dismissed them that their lives matter too. Jesus once told a parable about a shepherd who was watching over his flock of a hundred sheep. He suddenly realizes one has gone missing that it is no longer with the flock, that his life is in danger. The shepherd leaves the 99 sheep to go after the one whose life is at risk. It doesn't mean the lives of the 99 didn't matter to the shepherd. Of course they still did. If any of them suddenly became the one who was hurting, who was in harm's way, the shepherd would go after them. But in this moment, the shepherd's attention is on the one who is in need. In today's terms, we are awakening to the reality that the structures of our own society have relegated some, like our black brothers and sisters, to the margins, leaving them outside the bounds of the flock's protection and care. What was clear in Jacob and Esau's times and what is clear now is that our God does not abide by the rules of our human-created structures. Our God does not stay within those bounds. Our God will leave the 99 to raise up those who have been cast down. If when we hear this parable, placing ourselves in the midst of the flock of 99, the idea of Jesus walking away towards the one can make us feel worried or uncomfortable, anxious, or angry. Yet those defensive emotions come as they are born out of the ground of that zero-sum world it feels like we live in. Yet the love of the shepherd is not a zero-sum game. Neither is care, compassion, and justice in our world today. What the story of God is reminding us of today is that with our God, there is always enough. We each are able to have enough of what we need to thrive. And if instead we take from our brother what was not ours to have, in time that will cost us something dear. In the weeks to come, we will watch Jacob wrestle with that cost in his own life. 
we find ourselves in the midst of that wrestling as a nation today. We're gonna sing a song now that speaks of the story of those 100 sheep. It is a song sung from the perspective of the one, the sheep whose life is in danger, the sheep who is outside the bounds of the flock's protection and care. There are days when I sing this song that I am that sheep. I'm mindful of all of the shadows God has lit up, all the mountains God has climbed up, all the walls God has kicked down, all the lies God has torn down coming after me. Yet today, today I'm gonna to sing this song as one of the 99. I'm gonna sing this song thinking about the one and as I sing it, I'm going to pray that my God would keep me from being a shadow to someone else's light, a mountain blocking someone else's way. I'm going to pray that my God would keep me from putting up walls to other people's truth, that my God would keep me from telling lies about someone else's story. I'm going to pray that instead, my God might help me be an agent of this overwhelming never-ending, reckless love. That my God might help me fight till all are found. That my God might help me be willing to give, to give myself away, to let go of my self-interest so that I might grasp onto God's interests. Life unfettered, free life, abundant life for us all. Let's sing, y'all.
one shadow you won't light up, mountain you won't climb up, coming after me. There's no wall you won't kick down, lie you won't say it down, coming after me. There's no shadow you won't light up, mountain you won't climb up, coming after me. There's no wall you won't kick down, lie you Y'all, we worship a God that gave God's self away for us, right? Uh, we worship a God that will fight through whatever um, is between us and our Lord um, to come after us. We worship a God um, that invites us to have that same kind of tenacious love. Um, for God's world, right? And so, in the midst of this worship of this God who would give God's self away for us today, my invitation for you is to think of one way, one small way in this week ahead. You might give yourself away for God. You might let go of your own self-interest a bit that you can grasp um, God's interests, not only for you, but uh, God's interests for us all. <laughs> 